Welcome to the Colby Cast, episode 144. Thank you for joining us. Today, Bonnie Jordan and I are joined by Mark Brumley, president of Ignatius Press and Colby's board of advisors. We were pleased to get a chance to talk to Mark about his involvement with Colby Academy, but also about the word and how the reality of our Lord influences the way that we communicate, either by speech or the written word. We hope that you'll enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Bonnie, liturgical musician, popcorn and podcast fanatic, and Colby homeschooling mom to four lads and lasses of middle and high school age. And this is Stephen, homeschooling father of five and director of development for Colby Academy. And I'm Jordan. As a product of homeschooling, I'm proud to teach Greek and Latin for Colby online and serve as the alumni and public relations director. Stephen, how's the week been? Been a good week, getting a, getting ready for opening of enrollment at Colby. So there's a lot of moving parts going on right now in, in, internally. Okay, that's exciting. To, to When that gets geared up and going, that's, there's a lot of um, anticipation around what, what the new school year. While we're still hanging in with the one we're, we're working through, <laughs> like we're still yes. in, in this one. Um, sometimes that's more interesting, right? Let's look ahead to the next one, but oh, we have to finish this one. How about for you, Jordan? How's your week been? Been good. It's been busy. It um, was kind of fun in classes this week. There's shadow, it's shadow week where Colby prospective students can join a class and see what it's like. And for some reason, every shadow student I've had, I've actually met in person before this time. So that's kind of rare. I know them better than my my own students that have been with me this whole year. So. That was fun. That is neat. That's interesting. My kids have commented on the shadow week, so it's neat to hear it from your side of things too. Well, as you two well know, Colby courses utilize many materials published by Ignatius Press, including Sacred Scripture, the Faith and Life, and Image of God series for grammar-level religion, many literature titles edited by Joseph Pierce, Cardinal Schoenborn's Chance or Purpose, James Hitchcock's History of the Catholic Church from the Apostolic Age to the Third Millennium, several saint stories, and other good stuff. Today, we have the pleasure of visiting with Mr. Mark Brumley, who, among several other roles, is an experienced catechist and the president of both Ignatius Press and Colby Academy's Board of Advisors. Hello, and welcome to the Colby Cast. Uh, Great to be with you. I'm so glad this is working out. Thank you so much for joining us. I just named a few of many things about you just now. Would you fill out the picture a bit for us? Sure. I'm married to Debbie and father of five children and six grandchildren. So that, that's that's actually the better part of my life. Uh, not mm-hmm. better just in the sense of superior, but it takes up most of my time. So um, yeah, and I'm a convert. I, I was originally a nun in St. Louis, Missouri. That's an N-O-N-E, not an N-U-N, which meant I grew up as a South St. Louis unaffiliated theist, someone who believes in God and came from a family background where my parents believed in God and all that, but they were unchurched and raised me unchurched. And I have had an evangelical Christian experience and was an evangelical Christian for a number of years. And through a a com- somewhat complex process eventually came into full communion with the Catholic Church. So it's a little bit, and I taught Catholic school for a number of years and worked for the Diocese of San Diego and have been 
with Ignatius Press for 1.7 billion years. <laughs> so. A little bit. Okay. Well, how'd you come to be connected with Colby then? Oh, that's a good question. So we had friends who were uh, involved with Colby teaching or otherwise connected with the school, uh, the day school uh, back in the 90s and when we were in Southern California. And then when I started working for Ignatius Press, we moved to Napa. Uh, our kids uh, went to Trinity. Uh, so there was Colby and Trinity day schools here. And I think we also did some homeschooling with Colby way back in ancient times um, before that. And then there was the merger of the two schools, Trinity and Colby. And um, I was involved with that. And it was at one point I was on the Trinity board and, you know, friends with Colby people and working to bring that thing together. And then through, you know, getting to know Mary Rolls and other people, um, I was asked to come on the Colby homeschool board. And since I've always loved homeschooling, we've done we, we've done both, you know, brick and mortar school schooling with our kids and homeschooling with our kids. Uh, I thought it was great. And I really love the Colby model and the way you guys do things. So I should say we do things because I'm part of the team, I guess. At least I think of myself that way. Mm -hmm. So here I am. Okay. Fabulous. So what does the role of president of the Colby Board of Advisors entail? Oh, well, it entails obviously working with the board to do board level things, policies, and uh, staying on top of, you know, all of the wonderful details about the financial situation and mm -hmm. And how well recruit, recruiting is going and, and all those things that boards do that are kind of boring, but important, obviously yes. very important because they provide the support structure for, for the administrators and most importantly for the teachers in order to work with the students and their parents. So, Okay. Okay. Do you have any particular standout Colby memories that come to mind as you think about your long history with Colby? Wow, I I I do. I remember. I think one of the very first my first experiences with Colby Academy Day version uh, was going to see a play at the you know uh, on the campus uh, there, and um, I think I'm trying to remember. I think it was it was a Jane Austen story. It may have been Pride and Prejudice. I'm not sure, uh, but I was stunned by how good a production it was you know i i have been in education i had been in education various levels uh much of my life up to that point and i had done drama myself in high school but i i, I was just very impressed by the ability to integrate obviously top-notch education with helping students to be able to know classic works of literature by performing you know, plays based on them. So I, that was, that was remarkable. Of course, I've, over the years, I've continued to be impressed by really the level of instruction, whether we're talking about the homeschool dimension, the parents, you know, being the principal, uh, we say parents are the principal educators of their children, and that's true. They're the ones who have primary responsibility for the education of their children, but as we know, they rely on others to help them usually. And so whether we're talking about lesson plans and things of that sort that they utilize from Colby, or we're talking about the online component, 
uh, I have always been impressed by, <laughs> to put this in, in kind of, um, I, I don't know, uh, work terms, you know, the work product, what, what actually happens uh, with the education uh, of the kids. And um, I've had people really from all over the country when they find out I've been involved with Colby Academy Homeschool, uh, just rave about how Colby does things. So that's get. It, it's always good when you go someplace and and somebody comes up to you and and praises you for something that someone else is doing a good <laughs> job at. <laughs> I was really struck. Last year was my first year attending a live graduation ceremony for Colby Academy, and that that was kind of astounding to me yes. to see these young men and women. And I was like, these are high school graduates. These. <laughs> remind me more of college graduates yeah. at, the, at this point the the level of maturity and the the intellectual conversation that they were having and, and such was just pretty remarkable yeah no it, it is it is amazing um you know there's still kids in the in the fun loving kids sense but they have the many of them as students have the ability to shift gears and sound very mature so my sister Hope, who works with us here on the Colby Cast team, she does much of her work behind the scenes, writing show notes and and helping us develop upcoming episodes and and topics and things like that. She has a, a background in communications, and a professor she had um, during that training had some words to say about John chapter one verse one and chapter one verse fourteen about the Word made flesh. I'd love to get you guys talking about literature and study as connection to the incarnate word and these scripture verses, particularly in the publishing context. See what y'all think about that. Well, I mean, we think of the word as, as spoken or in print and, and I, I have given a talk, a talk, which I called the word made print, which tries to uh, explain somewhat our ignatius press's philosophy about print and about publishing and books and things of that sort of course the word before spoken and before printed the word is personal that is to say is a person the second person of blessed trinity so while we it's funny because when you have these theological discussions or sometimes when you do bible study on on the first chapter of john yeah, people will say, well, we're, we're sort of using this word, word, logos in Greek, uh, as a metaphor, as an analogy for how we think of the sun. And of course, there's a certain sense that's true coming at it from, a, from the human starting point. But really, uh, who Jesus is as the word should shape and inform our use of the word. <laughs> In other words, he's the he's the um, exemplar or the the source, and how we use the notion of word, whether it's ta we're talking about word as a as a concept, word as expressed in the spoken form or in the print form, it goes back to him, and so that says something about, I think, um, our obligation, and I, I would tie this into teaching and learning, our obligation to be clear where we can be clear because Jesus is clear where, you know, insofar as we can receive the word from God, 
but also uh, we should strive to meditate and understand and know and have a humility because there are things about God that go beyond our comprehension. And so when it comes to ideas and learning, we should have this receptivity to the truth. We should have humility and receptivity to the truth to, to make sure that our ideas are clear and our understanding is correct and our articulation of the same is clear and correct, but also that we should have a humility before the word because God goes beyond our human understanding. And, and similarly, when we're in discussions and exploring the truth, there needs to be a kind of humility that is cognizant of the fact that even in these human discussions and ideas, oftentimes our limitations as knowers and understanders come into play. So I, I don't know if that's a, that's a big riffing on John 1, 1 and John 1, 14, but that's what comes to mind. I'd love to hear from the, the gentleman and, and from you, Bonnie, on that. As often happens in these conversations, you start, you start talking about these things and my mind just goes to all of these, these different things like, oh yeah, I hadn't exactly focused on that as far as but then immediately going back to the like the ten commandments the importance of already in ten commandments you've got both the holiness of the name of of our god or of, of god and then the the uh not bearing false witness not lying you know the, the importance of those things are you know and then that expanding with our lord saying even if you say you fool or whatever the correct word should be there for the proper translation Raka. <laughs> Raka, yeah um, just seeing how that's emphasized in the in the scriptures and the and how important you know that that word made flesh kind of expand or is carried out as it is just what was jumping to my mind when you started mm -hmm. started talking about that mm -hmm. yeah i was uh i was doing this class earlier today and there's a lot of words that i i think in english i i thought we always said therefore had to be like after the first word of a sentence or something apparently like that doesn't have to happen now lucky for me i deal with the <laughs> classical languages a lot and there's all these words that come like second after you know and, it, and it's saying it's either saying therefore it's saying also something like mm -hmm. that and it, it always, I think it surprises students, especially that the, you know, in the ancient world, people read out loud and right. there's no, I mean, it's not until Augustine reports the first time when somebody is known to be reading in silence and, and he was amazed by it. And so these words, you know, they, they exist in our printed texts apart, like there's, there's spaces between words. They, they don't realize everything was written in capitals. Right. And it was just continuous script. And but these words have survived in this. But it, it's just a pointer to the fact that you had to speak them. Yeah, and it was always known that you would read out loud. You I don't I think it would have been very difficult. I think I think what Augustine was amazed about was the fact that someone could read. He was probably like, you can you can do this. You can read you can read right. silently. How can you understand it? It was probably a, a real uh, talent to be able to do that. So I, 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 I love that idea. I hadn't thought of it that deeply until today with talking to the students that, that they're speaking these same words. They're represented on the, on the page, but they're speaking them. And it's almost like giving life to them in a certain way, which I, 
I think is like really beautiful. It's like another element, the hearing part. Right. There's there's the uh, sort of abiding in the word, but that that abiding in the word or understanding or meditating in that word uh, tends to expression. So uh, it's not just that I can perceive the word on the page and even have an understanding with my intellect what that word means, but uh, there's a there's a tendency towards expression of some kind. And of course, as Stephen was saying, uh, one way, of course, this gets expressed concretely in the form of the commandments, which are divine word, uh, is how we live, you know, what we do. We act consistent with the word that we've received in the commandment. Uh, and then, of course, with respect to truth telling, do we speak the truth? Yeah. But all of this has to do with publishing, right? That's why we publish books at Ignatius Press. I want to I want to advocate for publishing and people reading real books. I mean, there's I've never enjoyed reading online. I, I just never have. If there's an article, I'd prefer to print it off and, and read it. And I I thought, well, I don't know, maybe it's um, the tail end of Gen X. Maybe that's all it is. I don't even have a smartphone or anything. Maybe maybe that's what the what it is. But um, recently I was learning about the idea of a note. And so a note was being described as like this bottomless thing that, that um, if, if you hear a note live and Stephen and I have talked a lot about like the different ways of consuming music with records mm -hmm. and all that. But I think there is something similar with with reading also. So even that step away from the the expression where you're where you're saying it out loud, there's something about encountering a book where everybody has this experience that reads books where you're like, it's, it's about, I made a little note about halfway through the book in the top right-hand corner or the, the right-hand yeah. margin or something that you can get back to it. And I think there's even more than that. I, I take something more serious when I'm reading it and I'm actually holding it than I do when I'm reading it as a, a piece of digital, whatever it is, part of the, the digital network out there. Um, and I, 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 I'm wondering, um, is part of the, maybe the challenge of publishing convincing people still that books are more, <laughs> books are more valuable, even if you could download the PDF and just read through it uh, online or whatever, are people moving away from that experience of, I want to sit with a book that is my book that I will have forever? I would say our experience is the, the answer is no. Now, I'm going to put in a bunch of qualifications of that first um when ebooks hit you know came on the scene some time ago everybody thought it was going to be the end of print books well it hasn't been um ebook for us ebooks represent a small but you know consistent portion of what we sell overall and we're not we're not hostile to ebooks but we're not enthusiastic about it my my view of the ebook is that it has its uses. Um, there are lots of things you can do with ebooks. You can search them more easily and things of that sort. That um, which obviously you can't do or do as well with a print book. But uh, overall, I mean, we still we print books. We still publish print books. We love print books, and there's there are lots of reasons for that. Part of it is the tactile experience. I think print books are more incarnational in that way to make it sound fancy and theological um, <laughs> but i also think that uh people tend to and i don't think it's just a generational thing i know uh you know 
people who are native in the in these areas of you know ebook natives and all of that are very comfortable with them and i'm pretty comfortable with them because when they came out i was using them and i and i still use them uh, but i think that there there are skills that you develop and aspects of understanding that you employ in a print book that is harder if not impossible to do any books and i think the function of being able to take notes i think also for a lot of us the the spatial experience of where it is on the page that you alluded to that's something that's very power powerful for us um for me i i i, I have a uh, kindle and i do read ebooks occasionally on the kindle and i do annotate on the kindle but it's not the same as being able to write in a book and make a note there and revisit that and come back and, and so on so for me uh, print books aren't going anywhere and i think industry-wide th that that's still the case i don't think the issue is so much books i think the issue is reading <laughs> i think people don't read enough now there's been there's an argument here about whether there's been a resurgence of reading as a result of the internet that because much that you do on the internet requires reading and i think there's something to that there have been a lot of studies out and these studies tend to confirm or be confirmed by my experience that the different you do a different kind of reading when you read on the internet it's a challenge to read well on the internet and of course not everything we have to read has to be read well. Some things we read quickly and superficially, and that's that's fine. It's what they're for, and that's what they are. But reading books and reading books well is a challenge. And I think that nowadays we have fewer people doing that, even though, paradoxically, we have a wealth of resources and fairly easy access to relatively inexpensive books it's it's i find it fascinating i i had some person at one point tell me i was complaining about ebooks because i too like to have the the copy because you know going through a I was a Thomas Aquinas College graduate, so going through the Socratic method, I wish I was wise enough that the first time or second time reading through, I would have known all the high, the important parts. But part of that journey, that discussion, some, suddenly somebody says something, you think, yes, that's important. And and he said something directly about that, and it was in this portion, but the, the actual copy for me provided like a map of the entire argument or the story or whatever so it's like oh i know that was in the middle of this and like you were saying jordan i would always get that i it was in a paragraph like up on this side of the page and i could you know quickly in class trying to right. find that that important text and you know somebody was saying with the ebook it's like well you can just tag it and then it's there but for me it was it was like driving with the GPS now where I don't right. have any clue where I am. I'm just like, I know it was in there someplace, but it's, uh, yeah, unless I can remember the exact words to search the PDF because I didn't mark it beforehand when I was reading, I didn't realize it was important. So all of those things for me, just discussion, got to have that, that paper, that actual text in my hand. But I'm curious how, how you teachers handle that 
with students at Colby. I mean, especially obviously in the online classes. I mean, what they do in the other context is, is hard to say, but with respect to the online classes, how is this issue of reading and marking up a book dealt with? It's for for especially for Latin. You know, these kids inherit, they inherit books usually, and, and they're like, oh, so there are some, I'm sure, who are just getting their, earning their grade off the backs of, the, of, of their <laughs> older siblings. But uh, no, we had a really interesting story once somebody was talking to, to us and um, about this, and they had a, their older sibling had been writing them notes in the margins, like good luck when you get here, whatever, just oh, wow. writing, writing notes to their their little sister five years apart or something. And I, I thought that was really neat because now the, the one who was doing it is in college and and um, that was a piece of history that, that was really great. The books that I teach from aren't, um, they're not, I guess there might be online parts of it, but, but as far as um, in the languages, you're using a textbook, usually that's, uh, that, that, that has just been passed down through the family. And so it's, it's kind of a, once in a while, they'll show on the webcams how beat up and old mm -hmm. their, their yeah. books look by now. If they're the lucky one, uh, maybe it'll last long enough. They can, they can cheat off their older siblings or whatever. But uh, I don't know what, what goes on with the, um, with the other, the other courses. Um, because I, I do know, I do know that, that people, there are people who do audio books, of course. So, as if something's in the public domain, they're easily reading the great books by listening to it. So I've heard that quite a bit and they'll speed it up or whatever. Also, um, it is, it is the, the, I, I think it's fascinating this idea of, of consuming how we consume the written word now and how it's, how it is changing. And, you know, Edward Gibbon has a great quote where he says that those who do not read are no better than those who can't read. Um, and yet, as, as you're saying, Mark, we have, you know, access to so much more than we've ever had. And paradoxically, there's less people reading. I go to an airport, I go to an airport with a book and I look around and there's not a single person reading. You know, I feel, I feel alone. I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm this zombie in their uh, digital nightmare or something. <laughs> well, that's because they're deep in mystical contemplative prayer. That's that's what it is. Exactly. <laughs> they're they're thinking up ways to give to the poor. That's what they're doing. <laughs> Have you found, Mark, in your experience, and especially when people learn of your publishing background, do you ever hear from people about their struggles to to st pick up a book that is worthy of attention and yes. devotion? How do you even? That's so daunting to pick that up and start reading. Do you have any? How do you? Yeah. How do you respond to that? I tell people to do it. Just do it. Okay. They can read. Now, now, my own experience, um, fortunately, when I was in high school, I, well, I should back up my parents, my dad especially, uh, my dad had nothing better than an eighth grade education, but he was an intellectually curious man. And so he would check out books at the library. And we, when I was a little kid, I was probably five years old, four or five years old. He got a big dictionary and he gave it to me and I'd go through that dictionary and I'd just look at words and, and try to figure out what they meant. And I remember before I could really, really read just the experience of seeing the shapes of letters in a dictionary. I remember that. Like I kind of 
I knew from my dad that that things that he would say correlated with what was the shapes in this big old book. But it was like it was like a magical, mystical thing. Like, how can you get that from here? I remember having that experience. And then, of course, as I went to school and started learning to read, I'd go through through the dictionary. And so fortunately, I came from uh, a background which wasn't heavily academic, but which was intellectually curious. When I was in high school, I met, I had some teachers who were just superb teachers. They were good teachers. I remember um, my high school physics teacher telling me that when I went to college, don't make the mistake of selling all of my books back to the college bookstore. Mm -hmm. He said, keep them if you absolutely can. You know, I know students get in financial straits, but keep them uh, because you can always go back to them. You can learn more things from them and you should be a reader. And if you're really a reader, that means you're gonna own books. <laughs> And so that was very powerful for me. And then as I got, you know, involved in, as an undergraduate and I started uh, reading great books, the great books, and getting involved with some of the folks who were promoting the great books, uh, this emphasis on marking up books uh, developed. I started doing that more regularly. And um, I, that's when I learned I, I remember, I, I, you probably can't tell, I got a bunch of Father Yaki's books up here. Stanley Yaki. Um, see if I can find the, the book that I did this with. By the way, you know I'm a fanatic because I often have, not for every book, certainly, but for really fundamental books in my life. I have a clean copy. <laughs> I have marked up copies over here. That I've annotated. Uh, but this book by Father Yaki, Stan, Stanley Yaki, who was a, a Benedictine priest and a science and a physicist called The Road of Science and the Ways to God. And I remember, because I was very interested in both theology and in science. In fact, at one point I wanted to be an astrophysicist. And I remember picking up this book and trying to read it. And I had no idea what this man was talking about. Now, this was, you know, I wasn't brilliant in science, but I had some background in it and some background in theology. I had no idea what he was talking about. And I, and I, I remember praying and saying, I'm going to keep reading. I have to reread this and reread this, not until I've mastered it. But until I can say, I understand the main idea or the main ideas on this page. And that took a lot of effort and work, um, but it paid off. And I would say, you know, it's not like uh, I'm Thomas Aquinas where I've understood everything I've ever read or anything like that. But I, I, I've learned that persistence pays off when it comes to reading a text. And, and that's the key. Now, a lot of people don't have that persistence. They're not motivated readers, they're not motivated learners. They haven't discovered the joy of learning and the joy of reading. So, so it, somebody, when you say to me, 
what do you say to the person who has trouble reading? Uh, I, I understand that it coming from somebody who has become a motivated reader, um, it, it can sound very simple, just keep reading. But I think that's part of the answer. I, I, I'm not, I don't belong to the school of thought that young people should be encouraged to read whatever it is, whatever it is that interests them uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, I do think that children's interest to the extent that those interests are not immoral or utterly uh, empty uh, ought to be encouraged. And so I'd say the same thing to an adult. Find something worth reading that you that you can get some understanding from and read that. And then challenge yourself. Keep moving up. When it comes to the great books, I'm I'm sort of of the Mortimer Adler school of thought. I know there are different camps in the, in the whole great books um, discussion. So I often approach this the way Adler approaches it. And he, and he emphasized reading with other people. Uh, he, he, he said, solitary reading is like solitary drinking. You know, it's not something you, you should pursue in any great depth. You should do, you should read together and discuss. So read, reflect, discuss, and so on. So that's what I say. If you are someone who might be interested in reading, finding find it a challenge, find someone who can read the same thing that you're reading and discuss it, talk about it. Doesn't have to be a, you know, uh, a high-end seminar discussion. Uh, it can just be a, a very basic conversation, but that's a start. I think that can motivate you to go deeper and read more. I'd be interested in hearing what folks here think about that. I think that's just essential. I had an experience again at Thomas Aquinas College where I'd read whatever going into class and I had a particularly fun classmate who just he he could always identify the the best questions to ask. Mm. So he didn't know the answer, but so he would ask me like a couple hours before class. So so Steve, what do you what do you what do you think about this? And so I'd I'd like hmm, I'm not sure, but then you know, you start to reflect on the readings, think about it. And I always felt I would feel bad because then inevitably the tutor would ask a very similar question in class because he was honed in. It's like, I'm sorry, I told you I didn't know, but that was two hours ago. And I've been thinking about it nonstop <laughs> since then. And here's here's what I think about it now. And it's like, sorry, but uh, um, I'm not trying to hold out on you. But, but just that different perspective, even when you think, yeah, I read it and I, I understood it, but there are things that that you miss or things that you you don't see clearly and sometimes it's just it brings everything together if you've got another person to 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 look at things in a different way or or they catch something that you may have missed something like that my my son was inspiring from from me that way as well he started getting into like american the founding fathers and the, the things going on in the revolutionary period and I was recognizing my lack of knowledge of history at this point because of being a public school product and it was sorely lacking. But then I could start reading, I was starting to read what he was reading at the same time. And that just opened up huge discussions as well that we could, so not even, you know, going beyond the text and wondering about things and comparing different people. And, and you know, yeah, it's to have somebody to do that with is, brings so much of that to life in a way that 
that you don't have if you're just doing it on your own too. And it's, it is the benefit of, of being a teacher, I'm sure, whatever you're teaching. But with me, I've had some students for four or five years at Colby right in a row. And then we'll be translating. Um, we'll, we'll translate a, a whole work like like Philemon or we'll and um, we're translating a couple other shorter things like that, but but with a purpose. And it's stuff I've read. I've read, I've, you know, I've written about, I've read it for 20 years and uh, that, that book has 25 verses in it. Right. And for some reason, somebody will say something that I've never seen in classes with, with you know, 10 to 20 students year after year. And I've never seen it in all these years. So that's really awesome. And I enjoyed it a lot. And I, that's basically what my master's degree was was reading texts that were too hard for me but yeah. because I was reading them with other people and with sort of a guide with the teacher leading the discussion but that's that's what got me I I had a, a experience but not exactly like yours Mark because it didn't involve one book but it was sort of um, at a time in my life where and it was grad school when I'm reading all these books that are a little too hard just a bit outside of what I can mm -hmm. do and and it took a certain commitment of saying, I'm going to prepare enough that at least I can I can have an idea of what's going on and I'll draw the rest from others in the class. And it took that. It really took that. And you had spoken about reading well. Um, and I wonder, Mark, when reading well, I'm sure there's different occasions for what you do to read well. Like it depends what your goal is, but what would you advise these um Colby students who are super busy with all these different classes and they're getting these these long reading assignments what would you advise them to to be where they're good readers I guess mm. that's a that's a challenging question because it's been a long time since I've been um, in the position of needing to read well for class purposes which isn't necessarily the same as reading well for life purposes because in the class purposes there there is a um, there should be a correspondence between what the teacher's expectations are and what the student's doing in order to satisfy the teacher's expectations. Now, we'd love to believe that you teachers always have the right expectations and sound expectations so that when the students meet them, they're doing what they would do on their own if they were pursuing uh, wisdom, uh, you know, on their own initiative and so on. But you know, and pursuing reading for living well in life. But uh, what what advice would I give to read well? Um, first, I I think for me, um, I make a, a kind of a determination of the kind of thing I'm reading. You know, what what kind of book is this? Is this light reading? If I'm going to pick up a like, I read a lot of science fiction novels. I don't spend a lot of time, you know, carefully reading and analyzing and you know identifying all the main characters and the plot points and uh, you know the, the themes of of popular sci-fi novels that i breeze through and i'm not reading them for that purpose so i first i say well what's my purpose in reading this and second what kind of book is this um and then you know i i'd use the old-fashioned techniques or that you see in uh, how to read a book, you know, I, I go through the table of contents and I pick out uh, the main themes of the book and what I think is the overall 
name of the book. I, I, something that's worked for me over the years to read well is to um, be cognizant of what my expectation is, what I think the book is going to be about, what I think the argument of the book is going to be, uh, or if it's a novel, what I think the basic story is going to be, who the characters are, what the themes are going to be. And then I test my presuppositions uh, in the course of reading. That helps me to be to remain a motivated reader um, because then I, I can say, oh, yes, I see I was right. Oh, no, I was wrong about that. And sometimes I, I, I ask myself, well, would this have been a better book if, if especially in store in, in novels and fiction, would this have been a better book if the author had done what I thought he was going to do or not? And, you know, of course, you come up with different unless you're egocentric and you just think you're the greatest, most imaginative mind in existence. Uh, you you learn that some of your ideas. No, it was better that it was done this way or um, no, I think he missed the boat. In, in doing this, we, by the way, I, I found that that's also a good way to watch movies. Um, uh, it keeps, for me at least, it, it keeps my attention. Um, you know, if there are terms or um, I, one of the wonderful things about the internet, my wife and I were just talking about this the, the other day. You don't always have time when you're reading a book, and it can disrupt it can disrupt the flow of your understanding in reading a book to constantly go to a dictionary and look something up. But one of the blessings of the internet, uh, and I do this all the time with my phone, is if I'm reading and I come come across a word I don't know, I type it in and look it up, and then I write the meaning of the word in the margin. So those are things that I do that that help me to read well. Also, trying to relate what I'm reading to what I'm reading to some question in life or some issue in life or some dimension of my life. Uh, that helps too. If I'm reading a novel, like for example, we, we're reading it. We have a book club here in Napa. We actually have a couple of book clubs, but one of the book clubs that we have is a fiction-only book club because many of us read nonfiction stuff, and so we need to have an outlet to uh, to do something besides nonfiction. And the book that we're reading now is a book published by Ignatius Press. It's Portalame de las Casas. I'm trying to remember the subtitle of the, of the book. I can't remember the subtitle. I should should remember it, but I can't right now. Uh, and it's really um, a fictionalized autobiography where he's talking about, you know, he's the famous priest, uh, later Dominican, who came to came with the Spanish during the uh, Spanish conquest of, of uh, Central and South America. And uh, as I'm reading this, I, I'm relating it to other things I know about, you know, the theory of natural rights and, and all of that at a very high, you know, level of uh, philosophical thinking. But then I start thinking, well, these ideas up here about natural rights and things that were debated in the 16th century, especially in Spain, in the during the period of so-called Second Age of Scholasticism, uh, very abstract. But reading this novel makes it very concrete. When you see how um, conquerors treated conquered peoples, and you and I have to say, the author 
does a very good job of getting into the mind. Of course, we know a lot about what De Las Casas thought because he he wrote he recounted he wrote a history uh, of it in his thinking. But um, you, it really takes these abstract ideas and makes them very concrete. Well, that's something that you can do with a novel. You you pick the right kind of novels. And you read them and you read them with care. You know, you think, well, what does this say about that time? What does it say about our time? My wife, of course, is she's because she's part of the book club. She's reading the book, too. She very quickly makes an application uh, to the abortion rights issue. And, and you know, uh, the, the Spanier, Spaniards claimed the right to do these things to people. Uh, when in fact it was a violation of the natural rights, the human rights of the people involved. Today in the abortion debate, you know, people talk about the right to abortion without any regard for the unborn children who are being whose existence is being dehumanized. Well, that's a that's a again that's a pretty volatile conversation and has very complicated aspects to it. But that comes about in my my thinking from reading this novel. In relating to other questions in my life. So how to read well? Well, take what you're reading, what interests you, or even what maybe you're not so enthusiastic about, and try to find a way to relate that relate that reading to some question. It could be a deep, profound, existential question of meaning in your life, or it could be just a larger question that part of the conversation, friends and family members, and so on. I know I'm kind of going down a rabbit hole here, but um, that's what comes to mind. That's making me think of my uh, my father-in-law was a was a professor, and he would say that the the best students that he would get he was big into theology, philosophy, and but a wide range of th things. But his best students were those who had read a lot, mm -hmm. so they, they had read a lot of literature. So they had this kind of vast experience of human nature, different time periods, different. Difference, like seem it seem this is it seems to me especially important today, where everybody seems to think that everybody's always thought exactly right. like we think and had right. the same experience. But to gain to read good, not to good, read good literature that's showing the effects of good actions, bad actions, um, the natural law in in, mm -hmm. in effect, and such is just kind of prepares you for the intellectual life because. You know, as an 18 year old going off to college, how much real life experience do you have? Well, not much, but if you've actually you know, been able to rely on some of these authors for, for greater experience, it allows you to then start thinking about those bigger issues, the, the, you know, relating them to, to some, some philosophical ideas, some ethical things that you can, you can connect. So. Absolutely. Well, when you, when you say people, oftentimes people have the tendency to think about certain matters that everybody's always thought this. Of course, you've got the other phenomena where there's the assumption that people that lived 2000 years ago uh, were completely different. So we got both of those things that go on. And part of the challenge, you know, I think is as a reader uh, is to try first to just say, what is the, you know, the, it's the sort of the classic thing that, you talk about when you talk about how to read or how to read well is what does the author say? What does the author 
mean and is he right or wrong and what difference does it make but what does the author say well in order to get at that you have to be willing to accept that he may have a different way of thinking about the world or you coming to the text assuming that he's say reading an ancient greek or you know some chinese writer from you know the fifth century that you're going to assume that he's going to be have a radically different way of looking at the world he may or there may you will find that there's commonalities so as i'm reading him i'm trying to say well well how's he i'm, I'm ex reading what he's writing and then i'm trying then i have to get at well what what do i think he really means what's behind what may be behind how he expresses himself and then you know well, is it true or is it false? Do I agree or do I disagree? And if I, whether I agree or disagree, what difference does it make? Well, how does it relate to me? Being able to do that with something, you know, and, and not with a, you know, uh, kind of an analytical, high-end academic approach, but just this is part of what is involved with reading, reading well. I think that can be transformative. People can learn to to really benefit from reading if they do that anyway that's my experience we our kids have started when they have reached high school level they have been taking the online courses in literature history theology and we have the benefit of many of the texts that my sister used for her colby education and so the idea of of annotating the books has come mm -hmm. up and, and I think they have started from the ninth grade level. That is among the first things that they address is make, you know, you'll need a copy of the book that you can make notes in. And yes, you can write in the book. Like this is a, a new idea to some of the students being able to, to make notes in the books and the importance of that and suggestions for how to do that in a, in a variety of ways that are going to work well for you. And so I, I have a mental picture. I don't have it in front of me. I'm right now, but I, I have this mental picture of one of the books my elder son, who's a senior this year, used as a freshman. It's marked up. It's got pages, like little sticky notes, like sticking out of it everywhere. And so it does not sit on the bookshelf nicely. It's like like a little porcupine with all its pages sticking out of it. And and so that has been that has been part of the experience of the incoming high school students. Now I will say something that the critical theorists, if they're if they're listening in on this, are going to say they can tell you what's really behind all this stuff about writing in books and and that is uh that a publisher here wants you to write in books so that when you get your books all marked up it becomes so burdensome to go back to it that you have to buy another copy another book, yeah. and so this is, a, this is a business interest economic <laughs> interest here that's uh, governing the pedagogical model my handwriting so bad i'm embarrassed to um, sell my books even so that's another one <laughs> so meaningful to find to open a book and find the writing in it like what what someone saw important enough to take the time to write in the margin I, that says something about that person too i think that's interesting yeah we 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 published a book years ago um called platitudes undone and what the book was i can't remember who the original author was i shouldn't have this on to be able to do it off the top of my head but i can't but it was um it was a book that that just sort of had sort of platitudinous 
or what purported to be true in a platitudinous way uh, within it. Um, and G.K. Chesterton had annotated it, had made comments, usually jokes or rebuttal comments to the comments in this, in this book. And so what we did was we published the original book along with Chesterton's markings rebutting the author. And it was, it was wonderful. I have it around here somewhere. I should try to find it. I can't remember the, the original book that Chesterton was annotating, but it's, a, it's an example. I don't know if that's ever happened. I know, you know for scholarly purposes, that sort of thing happens. But I don't know if for a purely sort of trade kind of book, it's ever happened that a book was published along with the annotations of someone uh, for the sheer fun of being able to read what the annotator had to say. If people are more knowledgeable about such things, might be able to point to an example. But I, I heard... Um that Ayn Rand, I'm not sure if it was the same thing, something with her reading of C.S. Lewis. Oh. Maybe maybe Mere Christianity. I, I have not actually, actually, I don't think that it was published. That's what it was. They, 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 somebody has that copy and they released a few images. I see. I believe. So I don't think they published her annotations, but um, yeah, I think I'm wrong about that one. Um, yeah, that's really creative and, very very fortuitous to get that and then to think yeah. ahead I, people would love love to see that i'm glad you mentioned it mm -hmm. funny to think that the annotations probably make make the actual original yeah. text <laughs> no. right they make it worth buying <laughs> to see what chester has to say yeah it's chester did of course and and clean copy, I'm there with you. My piano scores, I have clean copies of those and then copies I work from that I mark up and highlight and note, notate and everything. Yeah, that I don't think I'd ever put that together actually until you were explaining yours, that I do the same with my scores that you're talking about doing with books. So, okay, it's a new connection for me today. And of course, what, what happens is then I, and of course it's easy to do with Ignatius Press books, which I have more ready access to, but um <laughs> I will have marked up a book and then I will misplaced it. So I'm grabbing my clean copy and marking that up again. And then I don't have a clean copy. <laughs> well, as an apologist and a publisher, a catechist, a dad, grand, a grandfather with your vast experience, what words of wisdom or encouragement would you have for Colby parents and other listeners? Oh, you know, it's, it's a great uh, thing to be able to raise children to be able to educate your children, to be involved with the education of your children, uh, and to have uh, teachers and other resources that can help you educate your children. It's just such a blessing. And although you know, my wife and I were both trained school teachers and I taught in Catholic school a number of years, um, and we had homeschooled at various times and we sent our kids to, uh, brick and mortar schools at various times. Uh, I can't underscore enough um, the fact that ordinary parents with, if they're committed to doing so with the help of homeschooling programs and uh, teachers and things of that sort can educate their kids and do a very good job of it. 
and, and parents, you should not feel intimidated. Um, it's not magic. And I mean that both in the sense of just because you want to do it doesn't mean you're going to do it. Uh, you do, there, there, there's an effort that has to be put into it. You can't just wave a magic wand and say you're educated because you're homeschooled on the one hand. But on the other hand, it's not magic in the sense that there's not some incantation out there that only you know the elite have access to uh, you know you as parents you've learned you've been taught you can teach your kids you can get help uh to teach your kids whether that's you know text resources and things of that sort or online courses with teachers uh, it can be done and so you should take comfort from that and in encouragement from that and i think a lot of parents find that once they start getting into homeschooling and not only are they pretty good at it but they become if they weren't already lifelong learners and they become fascinated uh, about the, by the things that they're teaching their kids and their life lives get enriched not simply because they're doing a good job of fulfilling their responsibility as parents being the primary educators of their children but they themselves are experiencing the enrichment of enlargement of understanding things of that sort so i would say to parents take heart fantastic so i got to get you guys to come on my show so i can interview you with that i was just about to say you have your own podcast the ignatius press podcast there are lots of interesting topics you cover there and you talk to authors and and all kinds of people there and things coming down the pike and on the ignatius press side be sure to link to that in our show notes along with your website there it sure has been a fabulous conversation mark thank you so much for coming to visit with us here and all that you do for colby well thank you and it's delight to work with colby and all you teachers and administrators and people who are helping parents in so many ways i just thank you for doing that and you're a blessing Subscribe to the Colby Cast on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss an episode. And let us know how we're doing by leaving a rating or a review. And as always, feel free to email us at podcast at colby.org. Mary, our mother, pray for us. St. Maximilian Colby, pray for us. Ad maiorem Dei Gloriam.